Hey, welcome. This is Pastor Tyler Whitcomb. I just want to say on behalf of the leadership of Fos Church, we are so glad that you're checking out the Fos Church podcast. At Fos, we believe in the authority of God's Word and the ability it has through the power of the Holy Spirit to change the hearts of mankind and to mold and shape its readers into the image of Christ. And so we pray that these messages would do just that, that you would hear God's word and be changed by it. Lastly, our encouragement is, if you do not belong to a local Bible-believing church, that you would do so, because a podcast will never allow you to serve the purpose that God has called you into belonging to the church. Well, good morning, church. Great to be in the house of the Lord with you all this morning. Uh, my name is Tyler Whitcomb. If we haven't had the privilege of meeting, uh, I get to be the lead pastor here at Fos Church. Uh, we are finishing out a 10-week series on Living Hope. And Living Hope was a, a series that we did going through First Peter. And we covered really the three main themes of First Peter. And uh, today, if you're joining us for the first time or you haven't been with us throughout this series, uh, we're practically going to touch on all three of those great themes and so you got lucky today. You're not always going to get lucky in that way. It's not like most times when you speed read. Does anybody know how to speed read? Right? You, you just get to that, that final two pages, really, of the chapter. And you, the, the author typically summarizes what they were writing for the last 15 pages. So you get to cut out all the middleman. And that's what's kind of happening today, but not normally, so don't get used to it. Uh, but I'm, I'm excited because... Um, Peter is really just touching on so much of the, the human experience, so much of what we go through as humans in a broken Genesis 3 world that we live in, where, where difficulties and pain and suffering are all around us. Um, yeah, that's, it sounds like the last few weeks that maybe I've sounded like the grim reaper. I promise you I'm not trying to be, but I am trying to meet bad news with good news. And I think that's what the Bible continually does for, for 66 books of the Bible. It meets bad news with good news. Um, and because we know bad news happens, and my question for you is, do you have a safe place? Do you have a safe place? And maybe for you, you hear me say safe place, and you're thinking, hey, have you been in my basement, my bunker? You know, I got like food for years. I got like 20 guns, tons of ammo, like... Maybe you get kind of geeked, you know, your filtration system. Um, but I'm not really talking about that kind of safe place, and I'm not saying that's a good idea or a bad idea. I'm, not, I'm just not going there. Um, but maybe for you, you hear safe place, and you think maybe of a place. Maybe you think of a person, you know. If you're married in here, maybe you think your safe place is your spouse, right? Somebody you can just confide with. They know your deepest, darkest secrets. They, maybe for you, you think of a person. Or maybe you think of a place, Right, a place you grew up going to, a place that you always vacationed, and for you, like that place just has so many memories, and it's a safe place for you. Um, it could be either or; so it doesn't have to, uh, or it can be a both and. It doesn't have to be an either or. And depending on your need, your safe place might look different. If you were sick, you might say, "Well, my safe place is the hospital." Um, if you were in a dangerous domestic violence situation, you'd say maybe my safe place is being at the police station. Or, or maybe for you, if you're homeless, and you'd say, hey, 
it's the dead of winter, it's freezing out. For you, the safe place is a shelter. Really, safe places are predicated on our needs. And we could keep going, giving examples of that, but that's generally why we think of safe places. We think of safe places based on what our need is. And so in our text this morning, Peter is going to acknowledge that in the midst of a broken world, a world where suffering just exists, you are going to need a safe place. Like when everything else hits the fan, like, hey, guess what? It's 53 AD, suffering for the Christians. I mean, it's there. It's not as bad as it's going to get. And so it's like when they start throwing you guys to the lions, where are you going to turn to? What's going to be the safe place? Because we we will all run towards something. Peter's going to acknowledge when everything hits the fan and it starts getting real out there, you'll turn towards something to be your guard, and that will inevitably be where you've placed your hope. Right, where we place our hope, the place that we run to, turn to when when things get hard. And and Peter's going to make the admonishment that Jesus and the church ought to be your safe place as a Christian. Right, we have tried to, society, in society, we've tried to divorce being a Christian and being a part of the church. There's this whole idea of, oh, I, I can be a Christian and practice my faith on my own. I don't need the church to do that. That's not really seen in the scriptures. Well, because if, if what I see about Colossians 1 is that what, what Jesus did for us was that God transferred us out of the domain of darkness and brought us into the light of his beloved son. He brought us into a family. He's given you a spiritual gift that ought to be exercised in the context of the church, Christian community. And there's so much of the New Testament that you just don't see this Lone Ranger Christianity thing. It just really doesn't exist. And I know we live in such an um, individualized culture, me, I, number one, but that's not the church. The church is not this individualized thing. And oftentimes we take our Western eyes, we come to this book that was written in the ancient Near East, And we start attributing so much of our individualism to the text. But really, so much of the Eastern culture is community. And you see that in the New Testament over and over. Oftentimes, the authors are communicating to a community of people. And so, um, Peter here in our text this morning is acknowledging that the safe place for the believer is Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. And what if that's what this place was known for? What if, what if, what if that's how people, when they, when they were driving down Dodge Park and they saw this building, they say, man, that, that's a safe place. What if people in here, what if we really believe that this was the safe place? Like, like are my marriage is struggling? Okay, I gotta get to the church. I gotta be with people that are gonna be willing to fight tooth and nail with me for my marriage. Or, or, you know, if it's addiction, to say, hey, I want to be able to confess. And, and this, you know, church historically in, in the, uh, the West has not been a place where people want to be transparent, open, and honest. Why? Because there's a lot of judgment that comes along with that. If we could all just say, hey, we're putting it all down, putting it all on the table, we all have some messy cards. Do we not? Right? And, and so if we start just holding on to our messy cards because everyone else is just playing their best cards, and we need to be honest. And we can't be those people that are holding on to our dirt, looking at other people's dirt and saying, oh, 
Uh, how could you be like that? Aren't you a Christian? Don't, don't you know you're not supposed to talk that way? Don't you know you're not supposed to do that thing? Don't you know you're not supposed to go to that place? And hey, I'm all for calling Christians to a higher standard that, that, that we're supposed to go towards. But let's, let's all be honest, we'll fail at it. We'll fail miserably at it. And when we do, when your brother, when your sister does, that's not the place where you pick up the stones because Jesus will look right at you and say, hey, if you're without sin, feel free to cast that stone, brother or sister. We're, we're not the people that are supposed to cast stones. If Jesus is our model, and guess what? When, in, that, in that scenario, when Jesus tells those people, to, if there's one without sin here, you can cast the first stone. You know what's amazing about that? There was somebody without sin not casting stones. Because this needs to be a safe place. This needs to be a safe place where you can struggle with your doubts, your fears, your worries, your sins. I love that song, his mercy is more. Like, we have no reason, as believers, if we believe the gospel to be true, we have no reason to hide behind our sins. We have no need to hide behind our brokenness. Why? Because those are trophies of God's grace. We need to be people who are willing to war with each other based on the difficulties we're facing, the sins that we face. And I think about how Peter experienced this from Jesus. Right before Peter was gonna deny Jesus in Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 31, this is what Jesus says to Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. And so in the midst of that, Jesus, is, he's, as he's praying for Peter, he knows that, hey, Peter's about to go through an hour of trial. He's gonna go through difficulty. He's gonna feel shame. He's gonna feel fear. He's gonna see his leader getting taken away, beaten, tortured, and Peter would feel that immense fear and shame. And all the while, Jesus was praying, Father, ultimately, let Peter get through this hour. Let, let him get through this hour. Let him get to the other side because there's, there's beauty there. Right? Peter knew the struggles of life. And guess what? He didn't fail. You, you, you can maybe see that, that moment where, where he does deny Jesus three times, but his faith does not fail ultimately. Why? Because he had a moment of weakness that didn't disqualify him. You'll see that he becomes one of the big players in the First Baptist of Jerusalem, right? He's the one making these altar calls and thousands of people are coming forward. Well, just, just like two years ago, this guy was denying Jesus and now what is he? He's standing there talking about the grace of God that's found in Jesus Christ. There's something really beautiful about that. Peter's faith did not fail, but he went through it. He went through a trial, he went through difficulty, but ultimately his faith doesn't fail. His faith makes it to the point where Peter gets martyred for the cause of Christ. He dies for Jesus. He didn't fail, but he knew the struggles of life, the challenges of faith, and the need of the believer. And he speaks on all of that in our text this morning. I love going through 1 Peter because guess what? This is a guy that struggled and he learned from his failures. Right? He didn't, just get, he didn't get disqualified because of his failures. He got positioned because of his failures. And that God could use him. And that's our big idea this morning. That if you miss everything else, I want you to catch this. The church is meant to help carry each other's burdens 
but only Jesus can take them away. So that, that when, when we come here, we're gonna have failures, we're gonna have burdens, we're gonna have sin, we're gonna have brokenness, shame, and guilt. We're gonna have the whole, the whole pool of it all. And we bring it here, why? Because we're all in the same boat and we're all trying to stay afloat. And we're all pointing us to the one source, the one place where you can get healing and restoration and forgiveness and grace and life. And that's Jesus Christ. With that in mind, let's look at our text, starting in verses one through four. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so verse one starts off with so, or because of, or in light of. And if you remember back to First Peter 4, uh, Peter lays out that suffering hits both the believer and the non-believer. It comes for everybody. And it's because you love Jesus doesn't mean you're ridden of, of hard times now. And what Peter does is he takes these two worldviews, the worldview of the world and the worldview of the believer, and he lays them out for you. And then he says, this is how you respond to suffering differently because it comes to both of you. And so the example I gave last week was life is hard. Right? And a lot of people don't, want to, don't deny that, that life is hard. Um, and it's hard regardless of how you go through it. Being healthy is hard. Right? Eating well, eating a good diet, exercising, going to the gym, you're doing your thing. That, that's hard. But, but so is medications, and so is disease, and so is tiredness and fatigue, and all, all that is hard. And so the question you have to answer is, choose your hard. Which hard do you want? Because you're, you're gonna, it's going to be hard either way. Which way do you want? There's one that gives you life and one that takes life from you. And then Peter says, and later, it's suffering. Suffering is gonna be hard, but if I look at the world's worldview, he's like, man, that's pretty dim and bleak, and if all you have is 75 years and God's not a part of this, then this is pretty bleak. There does not seem to be a whole lot of purpose to this kind of suffering, but if you suffer as a Christian, and you see that there's actually a plan and purpose for your suffering, and part of that is to make you more like Jesus, and you can actually see that maybe your suffering could could have an impact on eternal things? Okay, well now I'm looking at suffering through a whole different lens than just if all I have is 75 years and nothing counts beyond this, then suffering seems pretty purposeless. But there's beauty in suffering for Christ, right? And so he's saying, in light of suffering coming to both the believer and the unbeliever, I have a charge, I have an exhortation, and it's for, um, it's for our elders, for, the, for those in leadership. And, and, and Peter says, and before you think that I'm gonna call you to something that might be too lofty or too high, he says, I am a fellow elder. Like, I, this is just as true for me as it is for you when he's making this charge to these, this, these elders. And Peter says, I'm not trying to set a bar for you that I'm not trying to hold myself. And he's saying, this is our call. It's to shepherd the flock. 
Because guess what? Your, your flock, the people, the people that God's entrusted to this church, he said, they're going through it. They're going through hard times and difficulties and pain. And so guess what? Shepherd the flock. Care for the flock. And there, there are two primary responsibilities to a shepherd, for a shepherd. The number one is a shepherd is the one who's to feed the sheep. Um, if you remember when Jesus was restoring Peter to ministry in John chapter 21, Jesus asked Peter a question three times. He asked the same question three different times. And he says, Peter, here's my question for you. Do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? And Peter, Lord, you know I do. Lord, you know I do. Lord, you know I do. And Jesus responds and he gives him a challenge. He says, okay, if you love me, Peter, then feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And we'll see that Peter ultimately does do that. We'll see that he goes on to fulfill his ministry, not perfectly, but, but he takes that charge of Jesus. If you love me, you're going to feed my sheep. And Peter, okay, Lord, I'm going to do that. You see, we live in a day and age in a culture and society where there's so much information out there. Everyone's writing a book. Everyone's got a podcast. And there's, we, we all have our, our, our lineup of podcasts we listen to. Maybe you're at, while you're working out or while you're driving or when you're going for a walk or whatever it is, you, you say, hey, I love this podcast. I love that podcast. And it just feeds us information. You know, I love a good audible book. I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's nice to drive and actually feel like you're accomplishing something beyond just going from destination to destination. And so I, I'm all about that. I, I get that. But in the midst of all this information and, and everyone sharing their thoughts and opinions and advice, there's also a lot of garbage out there. There's a lot of things that maybe sound good that are not good. And, and I think my, my understanding is as shepherds feed the flock. We're, we're called to feed a healthy diet. We ought to feed truth in such a way that when you're listening to all these different perspectives and all these different views, that you can spot the garbage. That you can say, okay, no, no, that's not true. That, that's not godly. That is not what is ultimately true. And, and it's important for us um, to be able to identify garbage because oftentimes it's put on a platter that looks good, that probably tastes good, and is enjoyable. And we're gonna get to it later in our passage today. I promise we're gonna get to it. But, but Satan's crafty. And he's gonna tempt you with things that look good and sound good, taste good, and feel good. But they're not good. Because good things become bad things when they take away from the most important thing. Good things become bad things when they take away from the most important thing. And so, again, we're gonna cover this later in our passage, but Satan has one soul motivation. That's it. He has one motivation for your life. It is to destroy you by any means possible. And he'll, tell, he'll take good things and promise you that they're ultimate things. And when you give your heart to those things, they will crush you. And the shepherd's job is to give you and equip you with truth. And sometimes truth can be a hard pill to swallow. Sometimes it's truth that doesn't taste good. Right? Say, ah, you really go for that loaded nachos that was, you know, it's like that was so much better than, than this plate of veggies. But the truth is better. It might not be, it might, or the truth may not be as enjoyable, but it's better and it's good. 
Jesus acknowledges this in John 8, 32. He says this, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Truth isn't always enjoyable, but it always sets you free. And it's kind of like when you think about feeding children, right? If you're a parent in here and you say, okay, my job in raising this child is to put nutrients in their bodies, to give them proteins and to give them all the whole litness of nutrition. I, I should not keep talking like as if I know about the nutrition world. Um, but we know we're supposed to give them a steady diet. We know ice cream for dinner is not a good idea. And we look at vegetables and we say, these, these are the good things to be giving them. And maybe what they want isn't that. But that's better and that's good and that's right. And it would be wrong for us to change things up and just give people what they want. Just give children what they want. Because guess what? Let's just, uh, folk, you know, we've been talking about putting your dirty cards on the table. I'm going to do it. Um, it's not just kids that, you know, don't like vegetables. I'm not a big vegetable guy. My wife has now got me on a daily green gummy. And it's actually really good. It almost tastes like a gusher. Um, so I didn't, I'll get you the brand if you want it. It's really good. Um, it, it, but I'm, I'm starting to do vegetables. I'm getting there. I, but I still don't enjoy them. Right? We've been doing a vegetable every night with our dinner. You know, and I need those nutrients, but that being said, it doesn't mean I like them, but they're good. And that's the truth. The, 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 the truth isn't always enjoyable, but it's always good. And to have a shepherd teach what sin is and how deadly it is. It might not be music to your ears. It might not be the thing that makes you go out saying, I feel so alive. But it's good. But it's good. And that's one of the challenges of leadership. When you're put in a position of leadership, whether in your home, workplace, or church, it can be a lonely place. It can be a lonely place because as you share the truth, it doesn't maybe always win fans. Peter might not love what you say. People might not love what you say, but they'll be better for it. They'll be better for it. You give a healthy diet of truth, people will be better for it. And I think back to chapter four. When Peter was laying out the, the, the worldview of the world, he says they, they respond to suffering differently. And he says, you know, they give into passions and sensuality and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties. And, and they give into all these things. I got to imagine there's people that are there and saying, hey, you're stepping on my toes. You're touching on things that bother, that, that are or that are important to me, that, are, that I hold as precious. And what do you mean you're telling me that I can't just give in to all these things? Peter would say that responding to fleshly desires isn't always a good thing. And man, you say that in 2023. That might as well be considered hate speech in the world we live in. Right? It's just, it's just the trend when we're going. But to say that not every idea or feeling you should have should be trusted, that's just true and good. Um... But again, we've been groomed in a society and culture that said we are amazing, right? It does. And for people to then say that, maybe say, hey, what you're feeling or what you're thinking isn't good, you say, well, hey, I dare you to go check out my 
my Facebook and Instagram because people there, they love what my ideas. They, they love how I think, right? And, and ultimately these platforms of social media, they, they, they've tapped into your human instinct in that way. They make you and empower you to feel like you're untouchable because if someone does bring a charge against you, you get to say, hey, guess what? There's 195 people right here that will tell you that what I think is awesome and it's great and spectacular. And so you're just the next person that I need to cancel, block, mute, whatever, unfollow because you just don't see how awesome I am. And I'm sorry for you. I'm sorry for your loss. And so maybe Peter's acknowledgement of shepherd the flock, he understood that what we see in 2023 was active in the first century. That shepherding the flock and feeding them a good diet doesn't always mean people are going to like you, but he's gonna feed them, he's gonna feed them well. Why? Because Jesus said so. Because Jesus said so. That's all, that's all you need is Jesus said so. The second great responsibility of the shepherd is to tend to the sheep. I think about what Jesus says in John chapter 10, he's speaking of himself, and it's one of his I am statements. There's um, seven I am statements in the gospel of John of which Jesus reveals his divinity where he explains how he himself is God. And so John 10 verses 11 through 14, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming, and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. What Jesus just says about the good shepherd is that he knows his sheep. And ultimately he knows what they need, right? He says that the shepherd responds differently than the hired hand. The shepherd has a way of being able to see that, hey, there's a wolf coming. Well, guess what? So does the hired hand. But for the hired hand, it's just his job. It's just his paycheck. And so when, when, when the, the, the wolf does come and things do get hard, the, the hired hand gets to leave, gets to dip and say, okay, I, I didn't sign up for that. But the shepherd responds differently. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The shepherd sees that wolf. The shepherd grabs the staff and says, it's on. Right? I'm not backing down. We're gonna, we're gonna go tooth and nail. And even if it costs me my life, I'm not going anywhere. I'm ready to, to go. That's the difference between the shepherd and the hired hand. And so the shepherd the, 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 is called to tend. It's supposed to know the needs and go to any length to accomplish that need. And so in our context, you know, there's um, a lot of perks to being a pastor, Elder, overseer, all those words are synonymous. Um, you get to be involved in some of the great highs of life. You get to be involved in marrying people. On their most special day, you get to be there. You get to be part of it. Um, when, when people have babies and they get dedicated, you get to be a part of that. But when people want to get baptized, you get to be a part of that. When, when people want to tell you about their new job situation, you get to go out to lunch and you get to talk about that. It's amazing. I love being a pastor for a lot of those reasons, a lot of highs of the job. But before you think it's all sunshines and rainbows, that's, there's other parts of the job. Um, pastors are generally involved with burying people, doing funerals, um, 
being bedside at hospitals, being brought in on marital conflict, seeing people at their lowest moments. And here Peter acknowledges that you've been called to shepherd the flock. And he says, and you don't just do it for gain. Don't, don't, get, don't get involved with this if you think there's some sort of personal gain that you get out of it. Right, because it isn't all baptisms and lunches and babies and weddings. It's not all that. Sometimes it's really hard and it's gonna cost you a lot. You're gonna give a lot of your life and your time and your energy towards the stuff. And don't look at it as gain, but honestly, think about it as loss. You see, in the New Testament, there's only eight times where you'll see this word leader. Only eight times. Whole New Testament. Over 700 times you'll see the word servant. Over 700 times you'll see the word servant. I would see that maybe what God's trying to communicate to people is that there's more than position, but there's practice and there's activity and there's work. And so if you're coming in for, for a title, man, it's gonna bury you because it's gonna be so much harder than what you think. And Peter's acknowledging that shepherd the flock is not gonna just be fun stuff, but that you're gonna get your hands dirty. And I think about what, what Jesus just said. He says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. You know what's really interesting about sheep? And it's not a flattering thing for you and I because over and over in the Bible, we're referred to as the sheep. The sheep are really dumb. They're really, really dumb. And shepherds have to go to great lengths to protect them. You realize if a sheep gets, gets stuck in the water, it's stuck? Like all that wool, all that stuff, it, it, it can't get anywhere. It's done if it gets in the water. Brings a little bit of context when Jesus says, I lead you beside still waters, right? He's putting you right in front of your fear and so I'm with you. Um, but Jesus says, I know my sheep, my sheep know me. And in order for that to happen, hey, elders, leaders, if you're gonna know your people, if you're gonna lead them, you gotta know them. You gotta be with them. You gotta smell like sheep. You gotta smell like people. You gotta get into the brokenness and the messiness of people's lives. And that's across the board. That's just leadership. Like, like if you've been put in a place of leadership in the home as parents, guess what? You need to know your kids. You gotta invest in them. And that's gonna take time and energy. And it'd be so much easier to just watch Netflix. But hey, what happened at school today? What are you learning how can I model Jesus for you? Or if you've been put in a place at work where you've been put over people, guess what? You want your employees to respect you as their boss? You gotta know them. You gotta be involved with them. You gotta get your hands dirty. Likewise, in the church, it's the same thing. We gotta know about the cares of people and not just think about what they can do for you. And Peter says, there's an unfading reward to this because it's not easy. You're gonna show up a lot of times and just not feel up to it. Keep your eyes on the eternal. Days are going to come when you don't feel up to it. Keep your eyes on an eternal reward. And Peter doesn't just make an exhortation to the elders, but he also does to the flock. Verse five, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. P Peter tells the congregation to clothe yourselves, the flock is to clothe themselves, all of you, with humility. 
What does Peter just say? He says, hey, listen. Listen up. Because maybe you don't know everything. Maybe not every thought that you have is the right way to think. Maybe not every idea you have is the golden ticket. And instruction isn't a bad thing. And that takes humility. Because again, we live in a society and culture where there's tension towards leadership. Maybe you've had a bad boss at work, or maybe you look at politicians, both local and federal, and say, how on earth am I supposed to trust leadership when when all the leadership that I've ever seen is just poor and it's weak? Peter would say, there's a different call of leadership for the elders, for those that would shepherd the flock. Why? Because ultimately their leadership looks like servanthood. And that's why you can trust that. They don't lord it over. They're not supposed to be domineering. No, they're, they're to put the interest of the flock above their own. Jesus says that's the good shepherd. Jesus would say the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Well, you, that, when you see that kind of love, that kind of commitment, that kind of servanthood, it makes being submission, submitted to that leadership easier. One that does have the best, your best interest in mind. And you may not always agree, and you may not always like it, And so when that comes, when you need to submit, when that day comes when you need to submit, that's when submission occurs, actually. Submission occurs when you disagree. Um, I remember working at a camp, and I remember our our camp director was going to be sending home a camper that was in my cabin because of behavioral issues. And I'm telling you, they were bad. They were bad. But, But what this 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 boy, this young boy, his life had been nothing but easy. It had been the farthest thing from easy. And it went from foster home to foster home and foster home and abuse and abuse and abuse. And I just remember thinking, okay, if we ship him away too, what does that tell him about church and Jesus? And so our camp director said, you know, I went to his office when the decision was being made and I came and I said, hey, this is why we can't send Q home. Like, this is why, this is why, this is why. And I, I try to give my reasons why I didn't think this was right or godly. And, and at the end of the day, he says, it's my call and my decision. And I'm looking after the, 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 the bigger picture. I'm looking after for the, the bulk. And I just could not help but think about Jesus going after the one. I couldn't help but thinking about that. And it's like, okay, can't we leave the 99 in this situation? Can't we go after the one? And then and again, at the end, he said, I'm making the call. Like his foster parents are coming to get him. And I remember leaving. I remember walking back to my cabin. I remember thinking, Lord, what am I supposed to do? I, I, I'm, my hands are tied here. I don't, I don't have the position. And it was right then, right when I realized I don't have the position, I realized I'm freed up. It's not my call. It's not my call. And I have to submit to leadership. And I don't think I did that perfectly because I still think it's wrong. And that story's still making sermon illustrations. So I, I don't really know if I'm the greatest example um, but I, I did struggle with that. But submission occurs when you disagree. Because if you, if you just agree, you're just going along with the flow. You don't have to submit to that. You're, we're in agreement. But when I don't agree, we're willing to submit and trust that this is, what, this is who God has in, put in place of authority and position. And so the place of the elders is really ultimately a place of trust. And the question being, do you trust those that God has put in place for oversight? And that doesn't mean you don't get a question or challenge. 
authorities, but it does mean you ultimately go with that decision. In those times when you may be tempted to run someone's name through the mud, my name, one of our, one of our leaders here, you want to just throw their name through the mud because we did something you didn't like or you didn't agree with. You ask the question, did God place this leadership in this moment for my good? And I think that's the questions you have to ask. And that doesn't mean, again, elders aren't above being challenged or questioned. But at the end of all, this is their call. This is the call to submit to church leadership. In verses 6 to 7, Peter makes a point that ultimately that this is God's intent. This is God's intent, that, that, he, that we would have this shepherd flock model. He says this in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And ultimately, so what you're seeing there, what, what Peter just acknowledged was, okay, ultimately you might be saying, okay, I'm submitting to elders, I'm submitting to those shepherding the flock, but ultimately what you're saying is I'm humbling myself under God, the mighty hand of God, that, that ultimately he's in control, that he has the power, he has the authority. And, and so Peter says humility is the key, both for the elder and the flock. In your humility, look at what God can do, that he will exalt you at the proper time through your faithful obedience. Because the goal at the end of it all is that you would be led in such a way that you would, be, that you would go to him, that you would cast your anxieties on him. That's ultimately what, what we should be doing here. That those that might be put in place of, of leadership over ministries or outreaches or whatever it is, that if you were to come in here, that the point is not, hey, listen to what Tyler has to say. Listen to what our preacher can tell you. No, ultimately, every time, if we come in with an issue or a problem, we should be looking at the word of God together. What does God's word uh, teach us in this moment about this situation, about this difficulty? Casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And anxieties do come. They come along with the pains of this broken world. That's just the reality. Uh, There's a lot more I'd love to say about this, but I need to keep moving. Um, Peter now is going to acknowledge the need of this shepherd flock model. Look back at verses 8 through 11 with me. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Remember earlier how I said that we would get to this later in the message about how Satan's crafty and that he's good and that he can put things in front of you that look good, sound good, taste good, feel good, and and you'd be tempted to think that it is good. Well, here, here, here we're gonna get to the, Peter's emphasizing that reality right here, right now. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. What, what, what is Peter saying? He's saying, pay attention. Well, why am I supposed to be paying attention? He's like, open, open your eyes, smell the coffee. There's a lion prowling around, Satan, prowling around, seeking someone, anyone. He's desperate for any of you, for me. 
He's roaring around here and he's looking to devour. Again, Satan's soul motivation, he'll give you good things and tell you they're ultimate things. Why? Because he wants to devour you. It would be as if what Peter's saying is when he's saying, be sober-minded, be watchful. It would be like we were out in the woods and we just got dropped down into the woods and we said, hey, guess what? Um, we were in northern Michigan, right? Uh, there's a bear around here. There's a bear in these neck of the woods really, really hungry. And what he likes more than anything else is human flesh. There's about a mile walk to civilization. Best of luck. How would you feel in that moment? I'm going to just ask you a quick question. I'm going to ask for a show of hands. I think I know how this answer is going to go. But who would be fearful in that moment? Right? You, I mean, what, what would you do? And fearful is not a bad thing as long as it doesn't cripple you. But if it makes you attentive, if every step you're taking, it's like you're walking through like a minefield, right? Like, like you're just, okay, where, where's the bear? And almost like what, what, what Peter's acknowledging to the suffering church is like, hey, you're, you're vulnerable right now. You guys have gone through the ringer. Be watchful. Because it's in these moments where he's just lurking around, he's looking for someone to devour, and you are the prime candidate. You are the person he's going to go after. And so you do need to be attentive. You ought to pay attention. Now, this is the point Peter was just making, the need for the church body. Right? Why, why we would have a, 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 an elder and flock or a shepherd and flock model is because we have a... We, when, when Jesus says there's the good shepherd sees the wolf, P Peter's saying, hey, we need each other. Why? Because there is a wolf. There is a lion. There is a, a, an apex predator out for your soul. And he's not looking to have mercy on you. He's coming to devour you, destroy you. One soul motivation, just devour you. And, and so with us together, guess what we get to do? We get to fight together. We get to exercise the weapons of our warfare against the schemes of the enemy. I love what the Apostle Paul says about fighting the enemy in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. He says this, For though we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of the world. Instead, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We tear down arguments in every presumption set up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought and we make it obedient to Christ. Uh, I love what Paul says. He says, we, we destroy arguments. We destroy arguments. So, so that, that means when we come in here and we say, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm tempted with sin, but maybe it doesn't sound so bad or we think we can play with it just a little bit. That's when we come in and we devour those arguments. We dismantle them. Why? Because we know. We know that's a stronghold. And the thing that will get you around that is the truth of God. It gets you past those strongholds. Right? Where somebody might say, hey, you know what? I just have, I have an issue with the bottle. I have an issue with alcohol, right? In 1 Peter 4. Be a prime example. But as that's the, that's an illustration you, you don't get to come in here and we get to say, oh yeah, let's just play with it. Just, just one drink ain't gonna kill you. No, it will. Like we come in here and we say, okay, let's break that grip around that bottle. Or, or maybe you're here and you say, hey, you know what? Marital conflict, difficulty in that way. 
You keep visiting those sites just one more time thinking this is the last time and you know, my lustful imagination is gonna go away. That ain't gonna happen. We just gotta destroy it. You know, you're at work with the opposite sex and there's this flirtiness, but there's struggle at home. You don't get to play with that, ever. But especially when, 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 when things are, when you're in a vulnerable place, you gotta be attentive, alert, sober-minded. Why? Because you have an enemy. In every which way you turn, in every facet of your life, he is looking to devour you even with good things. Things that don't seem to be bad things, they're not ultimate things. And so we think we can struggle with things like envy and covetousness and, and play around on social media. You do it long enough, he will devour you. And that's the point of it all, this great need, is that we all have a variety of temptations. We all have a variety of temptations, and if we aren't careful and we don't bring those things into the light to fight with each other, to band the army together, we will be devoured. We need to wage war with the worries and concerns and cares and sins of the world. Then our enemy, Satan, that prowls around like a roaring lion, he's watching you, watching you feed on bait. Just give him the right time to pounce. Satan's sole singular goal is to devour you and will tempt you with good things, promising that they're ultimate things. And when he can get us to buy the lie, we're in trouble. And we will need each other. But I'm here, to, and you can say, hey, Tyler, up to this point, this has sounded really, really bad, like that we got this enemy and it's really torturous and he's just gonna devour us. And yeah, we might have each other, but that's still a lion, right? You, you, you bring a lion into this room, hey, we got some, some tough people in here. We also have some guns, so we might win. Um, <laughs> you're all like looking around, who? Um, you're looking at them. <laughs> um, I'll be the first one to go at the line, I promise you that. I might not be the toughest guy in the room, but I'm tenacious. Um, but you bring a lion in here, you, 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 even with all of us, you might say, that's still scary. We're, we're still in some trouble. Here's some really good news. It's not just that we just, our safe place is just each other, but it's also Jesus Christ, the one who holds all authority and all power in both heaven and on earth. And this is what he did to the lion at the cross, Colossians chapter two, verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus at the cross triumphed over this lion. It was the cross where Christ defanged Satan, the, the lion that prowls for your soul. Christ defanged him on the cross. And so yes, that lion might be coming around. Well, guess what? Its fangs are gone. Christ made a public spectacle of him at the cross when he triumphed over him and he disarmed Satan. And so what that tells me is that if we live in obedience to God's word, then we have power over the enemy of this world. It means that the real power belongs to God, a different lion, a lion of the tribe of Judah, the conquering lion. And there's a promise to resisting the devil. He promises an eternal victory. And in that eternal victory, you will be, according to uh, Peter chapter 10 and 11, restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established forever and ever. 
You have an eternal reward to resisting the devil and giving your life to Jesus. There is hope for life eternal forever and ever. The three great themes of 1 Peter, you have a living hope. And that hope will get you through life's struggles. And that hope will continually point you to an eternal glory that far outweighs any suffering that you're going to go through here. Far outweighs it all. Life is going to be hard and Jesus will be enough. That's the promise of God's word. If you never have, would today be the day that you've decided to submit yourself to the good shepherd? That, that, that's what Peter, is, as he's writing this letter to the, this church, that's suffering. Over and over, the point is Jesus, both now and forever. You see, because we, we do believe that there is life beyond these 75, 80, 90 years that you may have here. Um, and the suffering would continue outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And Jesus offers both life now and forever, and you can be fully, freely, forever forgiven through a relationship with Jesus. Any worries, anxieties, brokenness, sin, suffering that you are experiencing in this moment can be put at the feet of the cross, and Jesus can offer you relationship now and forever. And we're promised that relationship through confession and repentance, that if you confess with your mouth and believed in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you would be saved. Saved from the domain of darkness, saved from the brokenness of this world, saved from eternity, separated from God, what the Bible would call hell. You could be saved from all that through relationship with Jesus. It's not just good news for the future, but it's good news today so we can offer that to you this morning. If you never have, I'd encourage you. There's no magical prayer, just an honest confession of the heart. Let me pray for us.